I'm glad to be here with you guys. My name is Dave. I'm executive pastor at Mountain View and filling in for Pastor Ken this morning, giving him a breather, but he still had to play bass today, so I can't fill in for that, though. That, uh, that I can't do. Hey, I hope you're having a great uh, Christmas season already. We're excited to celebrate that over the course of this next week, and uh, we just went out, as Pastor Ken said in the video, and invited a ton of friends in our neighborhood to come, and want to encourage you to continue inviting uh, folks for Christmas this season. We're continuing in this series called Fixer Upper, and we've got the, the mantle over there, and we're talking about the living room today and family traditions. Uh, how many people actually grew up in a house that had like a formal living room? I realize I probably should check before I start talking about it. Yeah, okay, so a few of us did. I'm going to say less than half. And uh, today's houses, if I say like today, who's got a living room, probably even less, because most of today's houses don't actually have sort of that formal living area, right? Like they, they used to design, especially here in California, we love to have the great room, right? Just one big room that we use all the time. And certainly if you ever watch the show Fixer Upper, there's no way that they would ever have a separate living room. That is so dated, right? It's knock out all the walls and just have one big giant room for the whole house. That's always what it looks like in terms of how they're designing stuff. But for some of you, you've grown up with that. Maybe mentally you can just picture that. A bit more of a formal room that you don't actually use that often. But when you have family get-togethers or formal events, you gather in the living room. Uh, I grew up in a house... Uh, well, I grew up in a few houses, I guess. Uh, my dad was a builder, and so he would build houses, and we would move periodically. Uh, but I definitely remember having a living room, and it had sort of the fancy furniture that you didn't really sit on that much, and we would set up our Christmas tree in the living room. When I think about it now, it's kind of like a bummer because we were never really in there, but that's where the tree was, and that's where the gifts went, and that's where we would gather when we were opening gifts uh, and celebrating formally as a family. But anyways, we're going to talk about that living room today and, and not, you know, focus on that, but talking about what it means to be a Christian family and what are the kinds of traditions, the activities that a Christian family does that makes it a Christian family. A Christian family is not simply someone who gives themselves the label, we're Christian. Uh, Attending a church service does not turn a family into a Christian family, right? That's something that Christian families do, but it's not really independently what makes them that. And so we want to talk about what makes a family distinctly Christian, and especially talking about Christmas time, these times when we celebrate uh, together. What are the kinds of things that Christian families do? How do they look? How do they act around Christmas time? Before we get into the passage that we're going to look at, being a Christian family is being Christ-centered. It's having Jesus at the center of your family, right? which sounds a bit like a cliche, and so we're going to have to flesh that out. What does that look like to actually have a Christ-centered family where Jesus is actually the most important person in a family? And so we're going to talk about the kind of traditions and activities that foster that, that actually put Jesus into the center of our lives as a family. And so, two asides on that. First of all, you may think, well, you know, okay, I'm tuning out now. I'm single. I don't have a family. Look, you're part of a family at some human level, right? And maybe it's an extended family, and it might not be your favorite thing in the world, but over Christmas, you're getting together with some family, some cousins that you never see. Uh, and so, you are part of a, a family gathering. And at a minimum, you're part of this family. Sunnyside is a spiritual family that you want to be a part of and make your spiritual family. So that's relevant. 
But I, I wanted to say that sort of as, as an aside before I jump back in. A second aside is when I use the word tradition, I'm not talking about just like the little routines that we have, like, hey, we traditionally eat, you know, ham at Christmas or turkey or tamales or we go out to Mary Calendars or whatever you do. I'm not talking about those kinds of traditions. If those are nice, I'm talking about the kinds of traditions that are actually activities with deep meaning. Okay, so I'm kind of the, the high definition of what a really good spiritual tradition is. That's kind of how I'm going to use the term as I go forward in the passage. So I want to encourage you to look in Luke chapter 2, and I want to read just a little bit of Scripture to you and reflect on Jesus' family and what it was that made them a Christ-centered family, albeit in a unique way because they happened to have Jesus in their physical family, <laughs> and yet they were... Uh, a very spiritual Christian family. And so I'm picking up in Luke chapter 2. I'm going to start from verse 21. And this is the end of the traditional Christmas story when it's read. Uh, usually you read about the angel coming and announcing a child's going to be born, and then the story of the shepherds in the fields, right? And the angels come down and pronounce to them, and they rush off to see the baby Jesus. And it usually wraps up with verse 20. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. Now verse 21. Eight days later, when the baby was circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel even before he was conceived. Okay, so eight days after his birth, Jesus is circumcised. And this was following Jewish tradition. This happened for every single Jewish boy on the eighth day, it was a very significant tradition in Jewish culture. He was also named on that day. Even though the angel had given him the name, and mom and dad knew exactly what his name was going to be, but there was an official naming ceremony on the eighth day that coincided with circumcision. So just in that one verse, there's two important traditions that Jesus' family is keeping because they're Jewish, and so they're following these Jewish traditions. Verse 22, then it was time for their purification offering, as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The law of the Lord says, if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. I want to unpack these verses a little bit. There would be the kind that we would, you know, if we were gathered together as a family and reading the Christmas story, we would pass over these pretty quickly, and I totally understand that. But there's a lot actually going on just in these couple of verses. There's two more traditions in addition to circumcision and the naming of Jesus that his parents follow in these two verses, okay? The first one is the purification offering required after the birth of a child, right? And if you've got a, a Bible with you, it's probably got a little reference, maybe a note at the bottom, and it points you uh, towards the book of Leviticus and the book of Exodus. And I'm going to read the verses where this stuff comes from in the Old Testament, all right? I'm going to read to you out of the book of Leviticus. It's chapter 12, and I'm going to read a couple of the verses that talk about the purification offering. Verse 1 of Leviticus chapter 12, it's the Early, one of the early books in the Old Testament, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. If a woman becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son, she will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her menstrual period. 
On the eighth day, the boy's foreskin must be circumcised. After waiting 33 days, she will be purified from the bleeding of childbirth. During this time of purification, she must not touch anything that is set apart as holy. She must not enter the sanctuary until her time of purification is over. If a woman gives birth to a daughter, she will be ceremonially unclean for two weeks, just as she is unclean during her menstrual period. After waiting 66 days, she will be purified from the bleeding of childbirth. When the time of purification is complete, for either a son or a daughter, the woman must bring a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or turtle dove for a purification offering. She must bring her offerings to the priest at the entrance of the tabernacle. The priest will then present them to the Lord to purify her. Then she will be ceremonially clean again after her bleeding at childbirth. These are the instructions for a woman after the birth of a son or a daughter. If a woman cannot afford to bring a lamb, she must bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. One will be for the burnt offering, the other for the purification offering. The priest will sacrifice them to purify her, and she will be ceremonially clean. Okay, so that's what's going on in verse 22 and then verse 24, is Mary is going through a ceremony of purification, okay? The reason why she was considered unclean ceremonially was simply because of all the bleeding that was involved in childbirth. And blood in the Old Testament was symbolic of purity and holiness, right? It belonged to the Lord. And so if someone was bleeding uh, outside of the proper blood that was involved in a sacrifice, it was considered to be unholy. And that was simply God's way of separating Himself from the people to communicate, look, when you come and sacrifice an animal and it's a bloody business, in that context, that blood is holy. It represents life. It represents forgiveness, right? The atonement for sins. And so it's separate from these other experiences in life when we bleed. And that's simply what's being communicated there. She wasn't literally unclean. She was ceremonially unclean. So in her case, after 40 days, after the birth of Jesus, Mary and Joseph head to Jerusalem to present this purification offering for, for her after childbirth. Part of what it communicates to us too, this is a bit of an aside, but there's nothing supernaturally special about Mary. Mary's a regular mom. She's a regular woman. She's not a perpetual virgin. There's all kinds of weird theories that parts of the church have come up to kind of deify Mary over the years. In this story, it's very clear that Mary is very ordinary, <laughs> right? She goes through the regular purification process of any woman who had given birth to a son. It's not the birth that's miraculous. It's the son who's miraculous in the story. And so they faithfully follow this ceremony and go to the temple to fulfill it. The second thing that they're doing is they're taking Jesus to present him to the Lord because he's the firstborn son and he's supposed to be presented to or committed to, dedicated to the Lord. And the second reference there, and you've probably got it if you've got a Bible that's got a few footnotes, is in the book of Exodus. And I want to read that to you as well so that you understand what the family's doing. So I'm in the book of Exodus, and I'm going to read a few verses from Exodus chapter 13, where the instructions for presenting your firstborn son are given. It says this, The Lord said to Moses, Dedicate to me every firstborn among the Israelites. The first offspring to be born of both humans and animals belongs to me. So Moses said to the people, This is a day to remember forever. The day you left Egypt, the place of your slavery, Today the Lord has brought you out by the power of His mighty hand. Remember, eat no food containing yeast. On this day in early spring, in the month of Abib, 
You have been set free. You must celebrate this event in this month each year after the Lord brings you into the land of Canaan, the Canaanites, Hittites, and Amorites, Hivites and Jebusites. Okay, I don't need to read all the rest of those guys. Okay, he's giving them instructions about celebrating Passover, and as a part of that, it's the dedication of the firstborn. Verse 8, it says, On the seventh day you must explain to your children, I am celebrating what the Lord did for me when I left Egypt. This annual festival will be a visible sign to you, like a mark branded on your hand or a forehead. Let it remind you always to recite this teaching of the Lord. With a strong hand, the Lord rescued you from Egypt. So observe the decree of this festival at the appointed time each year. This is what you must do. When the Lord fulfills the promise he swore to you, to your ancestors, when he gives you the land where the Canaanites now live, you must present all firstborn sons and firstborn male animals to the Lord, for they belong to him. A firstborn donkey may be brought back, bought back from the Lord by presenting a lamb or a young goat in its place, but if you do not buy it back, you must break its neck. However, you must buy back every firstborn son. And in the future, your children will ask, what does all this mean? Then you will tell them, with the power of his mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt and the place of our slavery, slavery, Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, so the Lord killed all the firstborn males throughout the land of Egypt, both people and animals. That is why I now sacrifice all the firstborn males to the Lord, except that the firstborn sons are always bought back. This ceremony will be like a mark branded on your hand or your forehead. It is a reminder that the power of the Lord's mighty hand brought us out of Egypt. Okay, so... Hopefully, you're getting some of that, right? Passover was this experience in the book of Exodus, which we were preaching about this fall, where God struck down the firstborn of all the Egyptians. But He did not strike down the firstborn of the Israelites who were living amongst the Egyptians because they had the blood over their doorposts, right? And that protected them from that destruction. And God says, in exchange, I'm asking you to dedicate the firstborn to me. They belong to me. And what the people were supposed to do is to bring their firstborn to the temple and dedicate them to the Lord, and in the case of their firstborn uh, sons, to dedicate them. And then what they were instructed to do later on in the book is to pay five pieces of silver and buy their children back from the Lord or ransom them from the Lord, right? So the Lord says, I want you to dedicate the child to me, but I'm not going to take the child from you. It's your child but I want you to give at the temple five pieces of silver to symbolize that you're redeeming the Son from me and acknowledging that my firstborn really does belong to the Lord. And they did this in generation after generation, right? And I love the way it teaches about how to do tradition. It's, he says, later on, your children are going to ask, why are we doing this? <laughs> and you're going to explain to them, the Lord delivered us from the land of slavery. That's what we're celebrating. And that should be at the heart of every kind of Christian tradition that we do. I'm going to jump into the application a little bit here. When we celebrate as Christians, right, and our kids ask, why are we doing this? It should always come back to, we do this to honor the Lord because He saved us. Because salvation has come to us, to me, to this household. We've been delivered, too, to a new life. And we do these things to honor the Lord and to celebrate. That's the heart, really, of every Christian tradition, no matter what it looks like, to celebrate God's salvation and God's deliverance. So that's what Mary and Joseph are doing, right? They're bringing Jesus. 
What you see that's missing in Luke is that there's no ransom paid for Jesus. They don't give the five pieces of silver, do they? All they do is they give that offering of the two birds, and that's what two poor people would do for the purification offering. That was given for Mary. There's no mention of any money given for Jesus, and that fits and that makes sense because there's no way that Mary and Joseph could ransom the Son of God. There was no payment for Him. He was dedicated to the Lord, period. Right? The Father was not taking the Son and then saying, okay, for five pieces of silver, Mary and Joseph, now I give them back to you. No. Jesus was dedicated to the Lord permanently. That's part of what makes sense of the next story that you read, or almost the next story in Luke. Do you remember the story when Jesus is young and He gets lost? He's not lost, but His parents can't find Him, and they finally track Him down at the temple, and He's been there the whole time. And He's like, Mom and Dad, why were you looking for me? Of course I would be in my Father's house. The reason why I said that is because He knew He was dedicated to the Lord. When He was brought to the temple, right, when He was 40 days old and dedicated to the Lord, he, you know, that was His home to be with his father, to be fully dedicated. Instead, of course, Jesus is going to ransom his parents. Right? He's going to lay his, down, his life for them, for all of us, and pay that price. Now, there's a couple of big words that we use here. If you have an older translation, it'll use words like ransom or redeemed. And I should park on those just for a second because we use them in different ways, and it's good to kind of get a biblical definition for those terms. Right? We only use the word ransom in one way today, right? When someone's been kidnapped, right? The kidnappers demand what? A ransom, right? To buy back someone who's kidnapped. We really only use the word redeemed in one way today, and it's actually in sports, right? If a team loses really badly and then they get a rematch, we, guess we say that that team gets a chance to redeem themselves, Right? which means like, you know, to show that you really are better than you were the first time. Okay, so just throw out those definitions. Those are not biblical definitions, right? That's just how we use those words today. Ransom in the Bible is talking about the payment that God requires, right? The payment for a person's life in this case. A ransom is paid. It's, about, it's a term that talks about the cost. And when we talk about Jesus dying on the cross, we talk about that being a ransom, right? That's a heavy price of cost that was paid. Jesus talks about His own work on this earth as being that. He says in Mark chapter 10, the Son of Man, speaking about Himself, He says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Right? Now, nobody kidnapped us. A ransom was a payment of restoration so that we could be restored to a new life with Jesus Christ. So, ransom focuses on the cost. Redeeming, redemption focuses on the same event, but looks at it from the benefit side, right? It's like the other side of a coin. When we're redeemed in that event of ransom, we get this new life in Jesus Christ. We get a relationship with God. We get forgiveness of our sins. We get freedom from our old life, our, our past. All those gifts that come, we celebrate that and say, those are the benefits of redemption because we've been redeemed. So they're powerful words. We don't use them always that often in a spiritual sense, but we probably should. They're great because they're loaded with meaning. And both of those things are going on in this story with Mary and Joseph. So there are mom and dad, Jewish family, practicing a number of Jewish traditions as their son's born, being faithful to them. 
And I believe every evidence in the Scripture is that they were doing it with a genuine heart. They weren't just going through an empty routine. Okay, let's go to the temple and bring two birds. You know, they really felt like we're being obedient to the Lord. We're honoring God. We're saying thank you for giving us this amazing son. And they had obviously lots of different special things to be thankful for because it was the Son of God who was born as well. But they were just a good, regular, faithful family. Jesus followed traditions as well. He ends up getting baptized. He shows up at weddings. He goes to the synagogue regularly. He participates in the life of his family and of his community and honors those traditions, even as he's flipping all kinds of religious traditions upside down and redefining what it means to have a relationship with God. Somehow he was doing both at the same time. So I want to talk about how we do that now practically in our lives for the last 10 minutes or so. Right? We've established that that's a pattern in the Bible. It's a pattern in the New Testament, following traditions. And so we've got three different ways that we practice these as Christians. You've got them outlined there, and I've got quite a bit of stuff in, in my outline for you so that you can see it uh, with your own eyes, right? But on the first level, there's biblical traditions, right? These are things that God has commanded for us to do. And so these aren't really optional. This is what every Christian should do, right? Things like assembling for worship, what we're doing right this morning. This is commanded in Scripture that we come together and worship God and honor Him. So kudos for this tradition that we're practicing today, right? This is what Christians have done for 2,000 years. We practice the tradition of baptism in water, right, upon confession of faith, which if you've never done that, Pastor Kendall talks about it regularly. I want to challenge you. It's a basic step of discipleship. If you've become a Christian but you've never been baptized in water as an adult believer, I want to challenge you to talk to Pastor Ken about doing that. We practice communion together. We do acts of service. We hear the Word of God preached. These are all things that are commanded traditions in Scripture. On a second level, we've got traditions as Christians that we practice that are simply things Christians have done over the years and have found useful for spiritual growth. They're not mandated in Scripture. You don't have to do them. But, you know, over 2,000 years, Christians have figured out a few things and said, you know what, these are some good habits. Prayer at meals is one of those things. There's no command that you have to pray before you eat. But you do see Jesus and other people in Scriptures praying before they eat. And so Christians have always done that. Just said, you know, it's a good way, good time to pause. You have to eat regularly every day. So why not make that an opportunity to just say, thank you, Lord, for your provision in our lives and to make that a meaningful part of our worship? That can be a very meaningful spiritual tradition. Baby dedications. We dedicate babies, right? You don't have to come and and pay 50 bucks to the church to buy back your child after you dedicate them or anything. You can be thankful for that, I guess. But we dedicate children. Why? Because we see Mary and Joseph dedicating Jesus. We see other children being dedicated in the Bible, and we say that's a really powerful symbolic thing as a mom and a dad to say, you know what? We want our child to be set apart for the Lord's purposes and watched over by the Lord, and so we dedicate children. We celebrate things like Easter and Christmas. It's not mandated in the New Testament that we're supposed to celebrate the birth of Jesus. But Christians have for almost 2,000 years and way back hijacked other celebrations that were going on this time and turned them into opportunities for us to celebrate Christ. And I think that's a perfectly good thing for us to utilize what's going on in our world and turn it towards Jesus Christ. And of course, that's been going on now for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, that's why we put up nativities. I've got a couple of little nativities uh, on the mantle there on either side. They're kind of small 
I could have brought that giant one, the blow-up one there, but it's kind of corny, so I just left it in the, in the entryway. But you know what a nativity is? It's a scene of the birth of Christ, right? That's what nativity means, is the scene of a birth. It usually has some animals, Mary and Joseph, baby Jesus, maybe some wise men, some shepherds. It, they can be huge. They can be really detailed. Christians often will have a nativity in their home to communicate the meaning of Christmas. And you might think about that. We could talk more about it later as a practical application for our lives. At a third level, there are those individual practices that families do. And I want to talk about those uh, probably the most for us. Think about how do we express, again, being a Christian family? What kind of traditions do we do that communicate to one another that Jesus is at the center of what we're doing over the Christmas season, particularly because we're in Christmas? Let's focus on that. Okay? There's lots of great traditions. They don't all have to be Jesus-centered. If they're not, let's just admit that they're not and just, you know, have fun. Elf on a shelf. Okay? I had never heard about Elf on a Shelf until a year or two ago. I don't know what I was living under a rock or something like that. Because, every, every, you know, when I said it, people were like, what? How do you not know about that? So does everybody know what Elf on a Shelf is? Yeah, you hide an elf in the house. It's like if you have little kids, right? And then they go find the elf and... Maybe there's a little treat. I just think that is so cute. That's awesome. I just never heard about that. I thought that's really fun. In my family growing up and with our kids, we would have an advent calendar, which was for the four weeks before Christmas. There'd be a little door that you'd open and you'd get a little chocolate out of that. So I like Elf on a Shelf because you have to work a little bit more. So, But my kids are a little too old for that. Maybe with grandkids. So that's really fun. That's not particularly spiritual or anything. That's okay. It's just fun. It's a cute tradition to have, right? Uh, tree decorating and gift giving, right? they can have some good meaning in them, but they're not inherently Christian things, right? You're just putting up a beautiful tree, and it's nice, and decorating your home, and it's awesome, stockings, whatever. Those are just nice things that we do. Not particularly deeply spiritual, but they can be valuable. In our family, we read a little kid's story still by Richard Scarry, a guy who wrote all kinds of little kid's stories. I don't know if you grew up with those at all yourself, but there's this one that's called The Night Before the Night Before Christmas, and it's just hilarious. And we read it when my kids were small, and now my kids are like 17, 19, and 21, and they still want to read that story on the night before the night before Christmas. It's hilarious. And we're just like, okay, I guess that's part of our family tradition is reading this hilarious little kid story. It's just cute. There are some other things that we do, though, that are really intended to be Christ-centered. And I, I want to share them with you simply for illustrative purposes. I'm not trying to tell you what to do. I really, I hesitate at that. As a family, as an individual, you've got to figure out how am I going to put Jesus at the center of what I'm doing and ask the Lord for help on how to do that. Uh, but just by way of illustration, a couple of things that we do as a family. We hang up a Jesus stocking uh, every Christmas. So everybody gets a stocking in the house, and there's one, and it's for Jesus. And in that stocking, what we do is we identify the charitable giving that we're doing over Christmas and talk about it with the kids so that it's not just me sort of, you know, sit, sitting at my desk. I'm old-fashioned. I write checks, writing checks to organizations uh, who, who I care about and just doing that in a vacuum, but actually doing it with the kids so that they understand this is part of what we're doing as a family and why we're giving to these organizations, the purpose behind them, and how that honors the Lord and models the generosity of Jesus. And so we make that and have made that a teaching moment by having that uh, Jesus stocking up there. 
Second, from, when, uh, from a long time ago on, I can't remember when I started doing it, but always, especially with the kids, when I walk by a Salvation Army ringer, I put money in every time and did that with the kids and then would talk about who the Salvation Army is and what they do and why it's important to be generous. Now, it helps that I've read a long biography about the Salvation Army and so I know its story and it's amazing and it's godly and Christian and uh, so that's become uh, a tradition in our family and I want my kids to grow up knowing you don't walk and go to the other entrance. (laughs) You walk up to it. And you give and say hi to the people who are standing there ringing the bell. And uh, to me, that's a deeply Christ-centered Christian thing uh, that we do. So, and I'm not trying to chew you out if you avoid the bell. Just saying, hey, think about it in a different way today. And the next time that you're at the mall and you hear the bell ring. Uh, Third, we do a Christmas Day meal with a bunch of people. We invite folks who don't have anywhere to go. For a variety of different reasons, and we invite them over for lunch on Christmas Day. Our family lives in Canada, and so we've got a thousand miles separating us at Christmas. Periodically, we do get to visit them, but most of the time, we're on our own here uh, ourselves, and so we've got the freedom and flexibility in our schedule to say, you know what, we can open up our home and start inviting some folks who don't have anywhere to go and, and gather them together for a great Christmas celebration. And that's become a tradition in our family, too. And it's the kind of thing, again, that the kids are like, we're doing that again this year, right? Like, they're excited about it. They think it's awesome. And it's just like, this is really great. And we talk about why do we do this? Why is this important? Why would we gather at 10 a.m. on Christmas Day and have another service? Well, part of the reason we do it is because there's lots of folks who don't have anywhere to go on Christmas. They're not doing anything. And we figured that out when we started doing our Sunday morning service, you know, and visit with people and say, well, what are you doing today? I'm just going home. And you're realizing, okay, this service, this is it for the whole day. Man, that is such a great reason to gather together as a church on Christmas Day and worship. So that's something that we can all participate in. Not necessarily that you can make it on Christmas Day, but Christmas Eve, right? We've got our regular services here. I just encourage you to invite people to come and join you. People are so much open, more open around Christmas to attend a church service, right? Especially if there's some carols being sung and the kids are going to perform. It's going to be pancake breakfast, obviously. It's going to be phenomenal. So I just encourage you, bring a bunch of people with you on Christmas Eve to one of those services. And if you've got nothing going on on Christmas Day, join us at Fowler National at 10 o'clock for a Christmas service. It's a great time uh, to be together in a family, especially in a season where for some of us we don't have much family around. Let me invite the worship team to come on up, and as they do that, they're going to lead us in a great song. Just focus on what are you going to do this Christmas to make your family experience a Christian experience? You might be in charge, so you've got real authority and power (laughs) to make the call. I want to challenge you. Do some things that are genuinely Christian in your family. At the top Take some time and read the Christmas story out of Scripture. You don't even have to be sort of in charge of the family thing. You could just volunteer and say, hey, would it be okay if I, you know, before we open the gifts, read the Christmas story? You know, most families are not going to turn you down on that. They're like, oh, yeah, sure, okay, why not? It takes like five minutes. We gather together on Christmas Eve with Pastor Fred and his family, and we've been doing this since our kids were small as well, and we act out the Christmas uh, story because the kids want to do stuff. And so we put costumes on, 
and sing songs intermittently and read the story, and they act it all out, and it's super cute. So, I mean, you know, there's lots of little kids. Kids love to be in plays. You can just do an impromptu play of the Christmas story. It's totally fun. But at a minimum, you know, read the Christmas story together and institute that as a family tradition. It might be to get a nativity. If you've never had a nativity as a part of your decoration, get a nativity scene. You can get them all kinds of shapes and sizes and then talk about why do we put this little scene up? Because Jesus really is at the center of our celebration Christian of Christmas. So all kinds of other activities, creativity, you know, that you could institute. I don't want to give you all the ideas. Ask God, ask the Holy Spirit to stir up stuff. But think about what is going to happen in our family that's going to be genuinely Christ-centered this Christmas. I invite you to stand. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for this week leading up to Christmas Eve and Christmas Day next weekend. Uh, you know our lives are uh, jam-packed and busy and we've got lots of stuff going on. And, uh, Lord, I pray in the midst of that that you'd supernaturally give us a capacity to slow down and worship you and honor you and praise you for sending your Son into the world to begin the work of salvation. We thank you that Jesus has ransomed us and redeemed us and set us free. We're so grateful for those gifts. Help us to truly celebrate them during this season. Father, for our loved ones, our family, friends, co-workers who we're inviting to church this week, I pray that you'd open up their hearts. Lord, you give us boldness to ask and work in their hearts to say, yes, yeah, I'd like to come. I'd like to check that out. We just pray for a miraculous gathering uh, here this next Sunday. And give us wisdom. Holy Spirit, speak to us about how you want us to keep Jesus at the center of all that we do as we celebrate together. So you continue with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. If you've never made the decision to follow Jesus and become a Christian, that's the first step to Christ-centeredness for sure. Before all this other stuff is to become a Christian, to actually become a true follower of Jesus. If you've never made that decision before, but you want to, I want to encourage you to just put up your hand. You'd just be signaling, you know what, I would like to pray with someone about becoming a Christian. That's that's the step of application that I want to take today. Is there anybody like that? I'm going to give you a chance to do that. All right, for the rest of you, I encourage, let's worship the Lord. And if you want to come and pray and pray for your family, pray for your family gathering and ask the Lord's blessing and guidance over that, come and pray. Take a concrete action and pray at the front today as we worship together. Let's honor Jesus through that.